0: frank skinner who i'm thinking of
1: the birmingham comedian
0: does he have a nice
1: bum no he's a very scrawny man
0: (laughs) he feels like he would be a bumless wonder
1: (laughs) that's his boxing name yeah Hello and welcome to episode 24 of All The Way Through the podcast journeying through the Louis Theroux back catalogue to work out if we love him as much as we thought we did. In the red corner is me, Matthew Dunmiles, Woo-woo. and in the blue corner is the pride of Linlithgow, Alex Watson. Yeah.
0: And Lithgow Rose, that's the name of the football team, so I can take that as my persona.
1: That's a great boxing name, that would be brilliant.
0: What are you wearing for this episode, Matt?
1: Uh, Probably some jobpas.
0: I hear that they are very comfortable, but also fashionable.
1: And <laughs> very popular out and about in the streets, as well as in the stables.
0: I'm just going to go for a cravat, I think. Keep it classy. Cravat, nothing else.
1: <laughs> but Alex, why are we dressed so foppishly dandy-ish today and talking about boxing?
0: Well... It's because we, with Louis Theroux, are going to meet Chris Eubank. It's
1: interesting. One of the things with when Louis met is there is this kind of accepted knowledge of who these people are because they were huge stars in the day. And I think most people do know who Chris Eubank is. What's your thoughts on boxing? Are you anti-boxing, pro-boxing, have no interest in boxing, couldn't care less?
0: Uh, I have no knowledge of boxing, really, but I'm personally a lover, not a fighter, so not super into the idea of boxing but I think you are quite into boxing.
1: Yes, I like it. I understand that it has its issues, but I do very much enjoy boxing. So Chris Eubank has always been like a very big figure in boxing. So I think I perceive him to be a big figure for everybody. And now he kind of appears on things like Celebrity Masterchef and Celebrity Gogglebox and people go, who is that man? So for a bit of background about Chris Eubank, He was a professional boxer, a very, very good professional boxer. He reigned as a world champion for over five years, was undefeated in his first 10 years as a professional. He had huge fights in Britain against opponents, including Nigel Benn. Ben Hubank was one of the defining fights of the 90s in boxing, as well as Michael Watson, which was a really brutal fight, which ended up with Michael Watson suffering serious brain damage. And Chris Hubank, at this point in his career, is retired He is finished with boxing completely. I have wrote that he's known for fantastic fights, incredible clothes, the way he talks, the lisp, and kind of being this over-exaggerated character, essentially.
0: So this episode was originally aired on the 12th of March 2002, so presumably filmed in 2001. So at this point, Chris Eubank is 35, not that much older than we are just now, which is interesting to think about.
1: Oh my God. That's a, yeah, that's really scary. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but he's done with professional boxing at that stage.
1: Only 35 and the whole defining career of your life is already over. That must be incredibly hard to deal with
0: luckily it means he has a lot of time to fanny about with louis through
1: (laughs) he does indeed and in the opening of this documentary we see louis and chris sparring in the ring
0: chris is assuring louis that he's not going to hit him and louis says you've already hit me twice
1: and then we see chris just pop louis a jab in the head a false impression of how this relationship's gonna go because it's not as physically conversative as we see in this opening scene and it's more about chris being the perfect english gentleman So scene one, we are in Hove, not Brighton. Brighton and Hove are now obviously connected, but Hove see themselves as separate. And Louis is talking about Chris Eubank as a modern day dandy. We see him driving in the car up to Chris's house. And this is usually where Louis will knock on the door and then the person will let them in. It's all of it staged. But Chris is already playing with Louis's expectations and he is standing outside waiting for him in the street.
0: Very much like when you go home to see your parents or like your grandparents and you told them you would be there at a certain time and they're already waiting for you half an hour before that. It's basically what Chris Eubanks done here. We see him wearing a very striking outfit, a long denim kind of coat or work shirt with a baby pink collared shirt underneath and a tie in the same pink colour louis is wearing what i've described as a truly regrettable cream fleece
1: (laughs) yeah louis is not meeting up to chris's expectations of sartorial elegance at this point so louis is perplexed to see chris in the street louis says we were going to come up to your house chris says well you're here i think this is an early power play trying to get the dynamics i don't sit in the house and wait for you i'll surprise attack you through your car window instead
0: Maybe he's nervous as well, though. Sometimes with stuff like that, you just want to get it started, don't you? You don't want to sit and wait. Even when you are the interviewer, the moments before the interview starting are just horrible.
1: They're the worst. Chris is joking that he's a bit camera shy. I don't buy that for a second.
0: Louis gets out of the car, shakes hands again. So they've kind of shaken hands through the car window. Now they're shaking hands in the street. It does feel a bit like they're trying to sort of figure out the dynamic between them. And Louis says Chris has quite a grip. Look at those hands. And he's showing them off to the camera.
1: He also comments on the size of them.
0: Twice the size of his.
1: He then starts slapping against Chris's hands, which is really quite a physical gesture for someone you've just met. That feels very odd.
0: Uh, Are those a lethal weapon? Chris says it isn't to do with the size of your hands. It's to do with what's behind them, ladies. (laughs)
1: Then Louis does this thing where he gets himself into a, like, boxing stance, squaring up to Chris. I wrote, this must be the most annoying thing about being a boxer, is people constantly doing this to you.
0: Chris gets Louis to back off by saying,
2: I know, I'm retired now, and plus you can't afford me. I'm, I'm far too expensive, yes.
1: So we go through the gates of Chris's hove home. It's a very beautiful old house with a really big garden. There's two houses on the property and one is under renovation, we're told. And that's the one Louis wants to see. Of course. This is Anne Widdicombe all over again. It's like when he's told he can't go somewhere, that's exactly where he wants to go.
0: Chris insists it's under renovation it will be his gallery and office but he doesn't want Louis to look at it yet because he likes to appear brand new as you may have noticed.
1: Yeah he's clearly very particular about his appearance and about what he portrays and we see that kind of more and more as the show develops. Louis jokes that he's very discreet and Chris says yeah discreet on national television and they share a kind of cheeky
0: grin. We're still in the garden at this point, but we've been joined by Chris's children. Louis says hello and shakes hands with a little boy called Sebastian, who looks like he's maybe around 10. Louis says Sebastian is his middle name. Chris introduces Louis to his other son, who he says gets called Tyson.
1: It's Chris Jr., I believe.
0: So Louis asks, are either of your boys going to grow up to be boxers, do you think? And Chris says, no, he hopes not. I'm kind of stealing your thunder here, but I actually did some research. Sebastian Eubank did become a professional boxer. Chris Eubank Jr. is still a pro boxer. And I hear that he's quite good, is he?
1: He's very good, yeah. He gets big audiences and he is a personality in his own right now, which is interesting. So we meet Chris's, what he describes as his missus, called Karen karen and louis share a mad handshake that goes on far too long and then that's kind of it the wife and children have been presented and then the men go off and do their own thing is the idea
0: interesting that louis says to karen thanks for giving chris permission to hang out with us that'll kind of hang in the air as this episode goes on
1: Chris and Louis head off into an office space and Chris is showing Louis his epilogue. Louis asks if he's writing an autobiography and Chris says it's being written for me.
0: It's being ghostwritten for him by a fellow called Martin. Louis asks why he doesn't write it himself and Chris says he doesn't have time. It's too too busy.
1: busy. So busy. And Louis kind of pushes. Um, because you're busy... Working with the children. Working with children. I think he means general children, not just his children.
0: But what a great get-out excuse for anything. If anyone says to you, well, why are you too busy to do that, Matt? You just say, I'm working with children.
1: (laughs) Louis then starts to read out Chris's biography. I think this is like a really cool interview technique, which I'd love to have seen him do with other people, because this is kind of a real short snippet of how Chris sees himself. In the biography, he writes, I'm a
2: role model who teaches by example. I don't drink in public. I don't swear on TV. Wonderful family. Gentlemanly conduct. I dress quirky, lisp when I talk. However, I'm a good guy. The one thing I've searched for all my life is
1: acceptance. All I want is for people to say, Chris Eubank is an all right guy.
0: It feels a lot like he's trying to tell the reader that he's a good person rather than proving that he's a good person by showing it.
1: Totally, but that kind of shows his obsession with how he's perceived.
0: So they head on to see the rest of the house. The ugly wallpaper and elaborate curtains continue. Chris points out his bedroom and says Louis can go in, which is one up on Anne Whittacombe, but the cameras can't. So Louis goes in and says... There's nothing, I don't think there's anything to be ashamed of. I don't, I know there isn't. Oh no, I take that back. They do a little bit of a back and forth where Louis pretends that he's seen something embarrassing and Chris eventually laughs.
1: Alex, would you let Louis through into your bedroom?
0: Mm, i'd have to make sure i didn't have any louis through relayed memorabilia in my bedroom first
1: <laughs> the giant cutout out being hidden away in the cupboard
0: that would be quite funny actually if he ever does come around i'll do that on purpose
1: But if you were a celeb, would you let them see the bedroom? Debbie McGee had an issue with it, and Whitcomb obviously very much had an issue with it.
0: I think I would. I think I'd just tidy up so there wasn't anything interesting to see. What about you? I think
1: I would. I don't get the privacy around the bedroom. Is it that personal?
0: We go on to the bathroom, which has a round jacuzzi sunk into the floor and has carpet throughout. Why was bathroom carpet a thing? This was a thing in many households and it didn't die fast enough.
1: great tub though
0: yeah fantastic louis says i would call this swank pointing out the bath chris claims he's never used the bloody thing
1: then louis gets taken to his bedroom he's going to be staying over with the eubanks it's a big sleepover and chris says he appreciates louis giving some of his time to this documentary
0: and louis jokes that he'll need a bigger bathroom though
1: that's the deleted scene is louis and chris in the tub Then we get to the truck, a huge, big blue truck like you would see on an American highway. It has the license plate IKO, chef kiss for that one. And apparently it weighs seven and a half tons.
0: He's had it imported from America. So just for the visual of this, because truck can mean a lot of things, it's like an American style front of a lorry, but without the lorry bed on the back of it. It's just the pointy transformer head of the truck.
1: And apparently it was once a regular sight on the seafront of Brighton to see Chris Eubank going around in his big truck. That was a genuine thing.
0: And in fact, it is a bank holiday. And that's Chris's plan is to take Louis down to the seafront and for them to drive up and down honking the horn
1: quick check of the driving dynamics chris is of course in the driving seat there's no way he was going to trust louis to drive the truck
0: so chris is honking his horn waving at people and louis is like no focus on me what do you consider to be your job now post boxing chris replies that he's a teacher he goes around schools and he talks to youngsters about combat Louis asks if that's how chris makes money and chris says no he does that out of love he makes money from his businesses Louis asks what those businesses are and chris says he'd rather not talk about anything like that because it's not important it's not relevant so in a documentary about his life he doesn't want to talk about a huge chunk of his life
1: alex we're only gonna hear him talk about the children it's all about the children not his children the children
0: they start to sound quite menacing the children
1: (laughs) it's a bit village of the damned actually again this he's kind of setting these boundaries i will talk about this i won't talk about this who i am in public and who i'm in private is very different but we see how popular a figure he is he's walking on the streets of brighton down in the lanes and a woman tells him you are lovely and he's getting photographs with people he's handing out signed photos This is all pre-smartphone era. And then Louis narrates... His affectations made Chris something of a hate figure in his boxing days, and he seemed glad I was there to witness his newfound popularity. Chris Eubank was not internationally loved when he was a boxer. The way he talked, the slightly pompous tone, the way he dressed. A lot of people would watch Chris Eubank fights in the hope that he would get beat because they wanted to see him lose. So yeah, it is interesting that then he kind of makes this switch and people do seem to really enjoy seeing him and are very kind of warm to him.
0: I mean, I'm not an expert, but I see things on social media. And I think there are probably boxers now that are similar to that. Like you have to build up this personality where you're intimidating and feared. And a lot of that does involve having an attitude. You know, people don't necessarily like them, but they still enjoy watching them
1: fight. 100%. Yeah, it's exactly that. And it's that idea of people will pay to watch your fight just to try and see you be beat that's still a draw that still gets people paying to watch the television coverage and paying for pay-per-view and stuff like this so yeah many boxers have made a career out of this floyd mayweather probably the biggest example
0: clearly it's had a little bit of an impact on chris eubank's self-esteem or personal image of himself though because louis then asked him how meeting people like this in person makes chris feel and he says if it makes someone happy he's flying so he's sort of saying he wants to make other people happy but he's already said all he wants is to be accepted so he's clearly getting something out of people being happy to see him and telling him that he's lovely
1: yeah And then Louis questions Chris on his self-declared status as an ordinary guy, says he cultivates a kind of eccentric persona to entertain the public. And Chris, grinning, says maybe he's a little extra. Maybe he's not just an ordinary guy.
0: Is that the first use of extra? (laughs) Is that a much older term than I realised?
1: Coined by Chris Eubank on the streets of Brown.
0: Girlies who love their Starbucks wouldn't have the term extra unless Chris Eubank had coined it.
1: Do you want to know what happened to Chris Eubanks' truck?
0: Oh, yeah, what happened to it?
1: There is an article in the Brighton Argus, which is the local paper in Brighton, titled, This is what happened to Eubanks' giant truck.
0: Good headline. I want to click.
1: 2019. Now a 52-year-old Portslade man, Portslade is a town near Brighton, has come forward to reveal he bought the truck from the boxing champion six and a half years ago. Mark Lamely, that's his name, (laughs) who uses the truck for... Please don't laugh at Mr. Lamely. Uh, He uses the truck for fun family trips and charity events. Said, it's funny. It's referred to as Chris Eubanks' truck as it's not his. It's mine. (laughs) Apparently he sold it to Mr. Lamely in 2012. Despite this, he's made several attempts to borrow it back, Mr. Lamely claims.
0: Oh, that's not how it works, Chris.
1: Interestingly, before he sold it, and this is a year after the documentary, Eubank was intercepted by police while driving around Parliament Square, Westminster, in his truck with a message that said, Tony Blair, military occupation causes terrorism. He completed a number of circuits before he was arrested. Wow. He did an anti-war protest in this truck.
0: What the hell? That's quite interesting.
1: But now it is very much the property of Mr. Lamely.
0: We get a nice final shot of Brighton Pier and Louis says in the voiceover that it's the end of their first day together and though things are going well, he can tell that getting to know Chris is going to be a challenge.
1: When is it not? When is that not the conclusion of the first day of when Louis (laughs) met
0: God, he probably just used to save the same word document for the voiceover. (laughs) Just drop the names in.
1: We're back at the Eubank residence. We see the family preparing for their days in the morning. Karen, Chris's wife, is making breakfast and getting the kids ready for school. Chris is ironing in his pants.
0: Louis sat at the kitchen table among all of the other children eating a bowl of cereal with like bedhead and he just looks like he lives there and he's the oldest son. <laughs> Karen asked him if he wants some coffee. Yes please mum.
1: He narrates about there being a clear division of labor with Chris looking after himself while Karen looks after everyone else. Louis narrates that he's heard Chris refer to himself as the fifth child.
0: Sixth child now because there's Louis as well.
1: Although he's on loan from the Hamiltons, surely.
0: Poor Karen
1: as he's kind of talking about him being the fifth child, is perfectly placed over a cliff of Chris on his micro scooter in the back garden going around. And then we see Louis and Chris talking. Louis brings up Karen being lovely, by the way, and adds... I don't know
0: how she puts up with you,
1: though. She's a quite bold statement.
0: It is. He's clearly changed his tune from thanks for letting Chris out to play with us, Karen. <laughs> In one day, Chris sort of asks, well, why do you say that? And Louis says, he's not rude, but as Chris was saying, he's a bit like a child. And it seems like Karen has a lot on her plate. Chris seems like he's going to say the right thing. He can't emphasise how hard things are for Karen as a mother. She's got a lot to do. And he
2: says, It's mad. The schedule she has to keep. I mean, it's just, do you understand? It's, It's non-stop and it is constant.
1: This is a really interesting scene because I think Louis is kind of questioning Chris, but then suddenly gets scared. He's walking away. He's walking into the garage and shouts back, I'm listening! (laughs) As if he's like scared to be in close contact with
0: Chris. Either that or he's just been distracted by Karen's shiny Jeep, which is parked in the garage. But then Louis asks, what is Karen getting out of this relationship? And Chris says, they're husband and wife. They love each other. They are in love and he fancies her so that's good yeah
1: which is a bit of the office moment that's your job though keith sort of thing (laughs) what's the strength of this relationship we are husband and wife louis pushes this again what is she getting out of this chris says there's no other way he's away working chris says it's cruel or wonderful fate that nature has given this to women so chris is clearly very extremely traditional with his gender roles. He's very complimentary of what Karen does but he's shirking any sort of shared responsibility of being a parent essentially.
0: What strikes me is that he's very aware of how it comes across and he's trying not to come across as a massive misogynist. So he says,
2: if I'm not speaking for men in general, I'm speaking for me. It is physically impossible for me to do what she does.
0: Louis says he's not going to argue with that. He's kind of taking the piss out of Chris. And Chris keeps hamming up the whole, I couldn't do what she does. She does such amazing work. Louis there like, I believe you. (laughs) But ultimately, if this is the kind of person that you are in a relationship with, they are weaponizing incompetence and you should put them in the bin. Because anyone who says, I can't do that as well as you, so you should just do it is full of shit. It's like
1: an extension of the you make a lovely cup of tea, can you make me a cup of tea? Yeah. <laughs> on a nuclear level.
0: Or someone who does the dishes badly on purpose so that they are never asked to do it again.
1: We're back in Chrissy's office. His personal assistant is there on the phone. Her name is Mary, we find out. She's got a very London Cockney accent and is keen to be called his PA, not his secretary.
0: Lurie doesn't let him off though. He says, You no, should say
2: Secretary Chris, actually. Didn't I did. You? Yeah,
0: I've always made that mistake. She is my PE. Personal assistant. Oh, God. Silly old me.
1: But there's big business to be attended to. Mainly that Chris has been nominated for Rear of the Year Award, which is presented annually to two well known personalities. Chris, at that point, looks confused. He doesn't know what's going on. Mary confirms it's about his bum.
0: Mary says that it's nice to be nominated for having a nice bum, but Chris doesn't seem happy and he doesn't want to show his rear.
1: I think he's worried he's got to show his bare ass. (laughs)
0: Imagine that was the rule.
1: Louis seems to know last year's winners off the top of his head, which is incredible. He says that last year's winners were Frank Skinner, comedian Frank Skinner, and Carol Smiley, who's a presenter of a popular TV show called Changing Rooms. How does he know that off the top of his head?
0: He did originally say Carol Vorderman, but then corrected himself (laughs) to Carol Smiley.
1: Mary lists off the previous male winners that include Robbie Williams, Frank Skinner, Graham Norton, Michael Barrymore. Pause. (laughs) Hunter, who is one of the gladiators, what a list. So then Chris is kind of in and ahhing and then he kind of rows back and he says it goes against someone who is meant to be teaching by example.
0: Mary and Louis are still trying to convince him it's a fun thing to do and Louis says, oh, Chris, you take everything so seriously. Chris says he has to take everything seriously because the children are very serious to him and they will kill him in his sleep if he doesn't <laughs> do what they say.
1: He says you can't do anything to ridicule his perception.
0: Louis replies. It's not a porno a-
1: thing. And then Louis teams up with Mary. He does his big stage whisper.
2: Is he always like this? Always like what? How, well, how Mary am I- knows what I mean. Yes. Is he? Yes. I get used
0: to it. I feel like Mary probably doesn't have the easiest job day to day. So maybe it's good that she has a, a bit of joking around with Louis.
1: Bit of pressure valve release. Yeah. yeah. But Alex, did Chris win Rear of the Year?
0: Uh, I'm going to say no. He did not. It sounds like it's more of a sort of breakfast TV personality prize.
1: He lost out to John Altman, a.k.a. Nasty Nick from EastEnders, <laughs> who won Rear of the <laughs> Year 2001.
0: Who won it for the ladies?
1: Oh, I don't know. It was Claire, Claire Sweeney from Burkside.
0: That's a good naughty's name, isn't it? That's
1: beautiful. It was still going up until 2019. I like the idea that the pandemic wiped out Rear of the Year. And it was last awarded to Amanda Holden and Andy Murray.
0: Again, another assless man. (laughs) I'm just having a quick look to see who the weirdest Rear of the Year was. Carol Vorderman did win it in 2011. Louis predicted the future. (laughs) We cut to inside a Mercedes car. We know that because we see the big obnoxious hood ornament. And in the voiceover, Louis says that later that day, he and Chris travel to London together, where Chris is going to be a panellist on Sports Quiz Show. They think it's all over.
1: I had totally forgotten this show existed. It was a British comedy panel show with a sports theme that ran from 1995 all the way to 2006. It was on for over a decade. If you know a question of sport, it was kind of like a question of sport with a slightly racier tone, a little bit more edgy.
0: So in the car, Louis and Chris are sat together in the back seat. Louis asks Chris if he gets nervous before TV appearances. And Chris says, like a fight, you feel nervous before you go in. But once the referee says box, you're peace at last. Which is what I was saying about the nerves before an interview.
1: So they arrive at BBC Television Centre...
0: Chris says hello to an attractive woman in the lobby and they kind of exchange pleasantries as she walks past. Louis says...
2: Who's that? I have no idea. Why did you say hello if you didn't know her? I've seen her somewhere before.
0: Oi, oi.
1: Yeah. I don't know whether he does know her or doesn't know her. Is he just playing with Louis at that point? I'm not sure. I
0: think he just fancies her. Do
1: you think? Yeah. Suddenly, out of nowhere, a young Jeremy Clarkson walks past. We are truly in the heart of Naughty's BBC. Chris Bank is still on that fucking micro scooter that he goes around on and he jokes, is this good enough to get on your show? And then he introduces Louis to Jeremy Clarkson and they shake hands. I would have thought they would have met before. I would have thought they would have operated in very similar circles at that point.
0: Maybe not. Maybe we can still like Louis more than that.
1: (laughs) I was just intrigued about like the crossover between Louis and Clarkson. And apparently the only other time is Louis talking about them doing a stunt outside the Cenotaph on Top Gear years ago. Apparently they did donuts in cars outside the Cenotaph in London.
0: And he was involved in that?
1: No, Louis just commented to an interview saying that it was better than being actively racist. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fucking hell, the bar
1: so there we go
0: that's good i thought you were going to tell me that clarkson was like his best man at his wedding or
1: something (laughs) no no so eubank is then going through the back of bbc studios on his scooter
0: so annoying
1: so annoying
0: can you imagine being staff and having to pretend that? oh yeah that's fine don't worry
1: some poor runner probably having to wipe up the scooter marks on the floor after he's done
0: And then they're in the dressing room. Louis says that Chris becomes oddly subdued suddenly. Louis's trying to G him up, asking if he wants to iron his clothes like he did in the house. Chris says no, because the cameras are there and he'd have to take his clothes off. To which Louis points out, well, we saw you in your underpants this morning. Chris replies, that was at home. Why is that different?
1: He requests that they turn the camera away from him. Louis asks him about being tired. Chris says it comes in spurts, but he'll be fine once he's on the spot. I think you might be a bit nervous here.
0: It is kind of like he was saying in the car. He probably is feeling a bit nervous. Some people just kind of clam up and get a bit quiet and then you just kind of go on and you do you do the fight. Is that the term?
1: You do the fight. Do the fight. After a little while, Chris is putting on his tie. He's doing a full Windsor knot, which I don't know how to do. And he's kind of mugging to the camera. Louis happy, punching him in the arm. He's coming back now. Daddy's back. He's back in the room.
0: Louis then asks if next time Chris is in a mood like that, can they film him so they can get him looking like that?
1: Then we see him going into the makeup room. He's walking in and he's kind of practicing his hellos to the makeup people.
2: Hi. 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 How are you? I think we're ready.
1: And then suddenly, out of nowhere, Gary fucking Lineker is there. Chris kind of repeats his line about he's just an ordinary guy. Lineker has a little laugh.
0: Chris then jokingly says that if Jonathan Ross bullies anyone intellectually on the show, he'll punch him. And Ross is just there getting his makeup done in the next chair. Louis asks him how to get on well on the show and Jonathan Ross replies, My rule
3: is
2: keep talking and they'll, they'll find something that they can
3: use.
0: Which is actually how we approach this podcast.
1: <laughs> we don't approach it the way Mick Hancock is. That's the show's presenter, Nick Hancock. Sat in his chair, getting his makeup done, sharing a cigarette with the makeup woman. <laughs> What in the freewheeling noughties is this?
0: A lot of health and safety rules have changed.
1: <laughs> we cut to Chris and Louis behind the curtain. It's about to start. Louis's tapping him on the shoulders, kind of g him up like his boxing coach. And then they clap him on and he heads onto the
0: stage.
3: They think it's all over.
0: Chris is on a team with Gary Lineker, his team captain, who always stays the same for that team. And then comedian Rory McGrath. Like you were saying, Nick Hancock presents, introducing Chris as a former boxer who recently converted to Islam. And Chris immediately cuts him off, tells him to stop and says he can't do that. So then they retake and Hancock changes the line to a former boxer who's determined to fuck up this show.
1: I wonder what the punchline was there, because I've then researched whether it was that Eubank had converted to Islam, but apparently he's not. That was just a setup for a bad joke. Louis narrates that he's enjoying the show at first. And then we see the panellist, David.
0: David Gower, former cricketer, apparently.
1: There you go. He is sat next to Jonathan Ross and he says it makes a change being sat next to a badly dressed twat with a speech impediment comparing Eubank and Rossi. Chris then pulls a face. He's not too keen on that
0: one. He objects to it and asks if that comment will stay in. And Hancock makes a little joke and they move on. But Louis says that Chris's discomfort becomes apparent as the show goes on. Chris says on the show that he seems to be taking all the stick and he's only human. And at one point he starts singing and then gets made fun of.
1: He sings the best of everything. That's what I wish for you, which is a Sinatra song. Hancock jokes. He's turned into Judy Garland. Roy McGrath says he's dressed like Judy Garland. The joke doesn't really work, but people are fucking laughing anyway. Early noughties panel shows that you kind of forget how close to the bone they were at that point.
0: And if you think about what Jonathan Ross says, which is just say as much as you can. If you aren't constantly talking and making jokes and you just don't get cut into the final thing. So everybody's just trying to come up with these zingers and half the time the jokes aren't even funny. They're just... (laughs) Offensive.
1: <laughs> yeah. Hancock makes the point he's complaining about being the center of attention, but he dresses to attract attention. Chris is clearly getting upset. Audience seems to be enjoying it though. They quite like seeing Chris Yuvan get all the stick at this point.
0: Which maybe makes sense if his persona was to be disliked.
1: Yeah, seeing him being cut down to size definitely probably is enjoyable for some. The recording is over. Louis joins Eubank on the stage. He's asking Louis how he came across. And he says, they killed me. They killed me. He repeats that a number of times.
0: Louis insists that they didn't kill him. And Chris argues that if others make jokes like that, it doesn't mean much. But if he does it, he wouldn't get away with it. Louis asks, is that because you're a role model? Maybe you're taking the role model stuff too seriously. Sorry to say, well, you should have tried to be funny. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe that is a fair point.
1: It's interesting. I don't know. I don't know what he expected from this encounter. But Louis narrates how he's surprised, how sensitive Chris is. And we see him kind of exiting the studio. He's still got that denim overcoat on and he's got his scooter in his hand. It's hard not to feel sorry for someone being picked on for being different. That really came across in that scene. He is different, he is eccentric and some of it is clearly an act for attention but I think some of it is just who Chris Ewing is. I did feel a little bit sorry for
0: him. Yeah. Louis says he thinks Chris has been a bit naive to think he would receive special treatment. I.e., if you're going to go on a comedy panel show, watch it first. (laughs)
1: 100% yeah. The next day, outside Chris's hotel in central London, Chris is still in the same outfit that's been on for three days in a row now. Same shirt, same denim overcoat.
0: I hope that the undershirt has changed and the overcoat is just like, you know, you don't wash it that often. Maybe it's a dry clean only.
1: Yeah, let's hope so. Chris says he's feeling reflective, which is natural after someone hurts your feelings. Next day, still stoned by the brutal nature of that panel show.
0: Louis tells him not to beat himself up about it And then to cheer themselves up Chris wants to take Louis around A few of his London outfitters So they can talk about his unique sense of style They go into a smart suit shop And they talk about jodhpurs As modelled by Matthew right now For your listening pleasure
1: Thank you very much for noticing They don't go into any tailors, Alex They go into Kilgore tailoring Which has been going for over 140 years And is on Savile Row I had a look on the website The clothes are reassuringly expensive.
0: Did you see if they still sell Jodpers?
1: I didn't see any Jodpers for sale.
0: That's a shame. Well, they talk about how Chris doesn't ride horses, only motorbikes, but he likes the way that jodhpers look. And the tailor says that not many people wear the trousers just for style purposes, but that's okay, he will sell them to Chris for a ridiculous amount of money.
1: Louis asks if Chris's smart, plush look is showing off. And Chris starts to answer when his tailor, John, kind of chimes in.
2: Well, I think it is a little bit show-off. is not it, to wear mm. job is like this. But that's the idea. You want to entertain people with your clothes.
1: But Chris says we prefer to use the word showman or showmanship rather than showy-off.
0: They leave the shop and walk down the street and Chris is telling Louis that he aspires to talk like Prince Charles. Spoiler, now King Charles. Because the way Prince Charles talks is very stylish. <laughs> Louis argues that he doesn't think Prince Charles is very stylish.
1: Chris then recalls a the meeting he had with Prince Charles where he said to Chris, You know, Chris, I can't believe how she's mellowed Quite a good Prince Charles impression. Chris said there was so much character and Englishness in it. It was stylish to him. And because of his Jamaican heritage, he kind of admires that. That's why he practised that. This chat is so interesting from a conic kind of class perspective, right? From like Louis's background and Chris's background. Chris grew up in a very impoverished background, born in Dulwich, South London in 1966. His dad was Jamaican. He was raised in Jamaica and then returned to England at the age of six. Whereas Louis is from a very middle-class background, went to Oxbridge. So it's really interesting that Chris sees what Prince Charles is as something to like aspire to be. Whereas Louis kind of looks at that as kind of, no, thank you. I don't really want any of that. Louis then says, you always go marvellous. And he does an impression of Chris complete with the lisp. Chris then picks him up on that. He says, I don't use the lisp with that, though. I know where to put my tongue. Louis then making him try and say stuff without the lisp.
0: This all feels a bit demeaning.
1: Yeah, because then he's kind of saying, oh, is that an affectation." Chris says it's not, but if he speaks quickly, he can't control it. And then Louis asks him to say she sells seashells by the seashore. It's kind of like playing with a toy. It's very strange that he makes him do all these things.
0: It doesn't sit that well. Maybe this is the kind of thing that we're more aware of and more sensitive to now than we would have been then.
1: Yeah, it's clearly not an affectation.
0: Chris says in response to this, well, you've got me looking a little bit silly now. We'll do a bit more of that later, shall we? He's starting to feel like Louis is just trying to take the piss out of him.
1: We then get a cut of Louis and Chris out shopping together. It's a real step up from the Lincoln Shopping Centre with Paul Daniels. Louis says that him and Chris are getting on better than ever, but he says he's aware that he's still performing, but he's taking himself a little less seriously.
0: Next, Chris is sitting in the back of a car in a tan suit. He has changed his clothes. Thank Christ. Maybe he bought a new suit and he's on the phone. Louis is there in the car as well. And he says in the voiceover that it's several days later and he and Chris are traveling back to Brighton. So what they got up to in London for a few days, we'll never know. Louis says that he was surprised to learn that Chris had been up until the small hours of the night before drinking champagne. This is a side that Chris hasn't allowed Louis to see.
1: Yeah. Who is he with? We don't know. Louis says that Chris is very camera careful. He uses this term. He kind of elaborates on this. He's kind of psychoanalyzing Chris. I think you think that if you're not caught doing it, then
2: it hasn't happened.
0: Chris argues, he says no, that's not the case. He claims he went to bed at 11.30 the night before and tells Louis he doesn't drink and if he did, he wouldn't tell him. Louis assures him that kids aren't watching the programme and Chris asks,
2: Why, why, why do, you, what, do you think kids believe, do you think they abide by watershed? <laughs> Which is
1: a great line.
0: So many children just clamouring to watch <laughs> when Louis met Chris Eubank.
1: So then Louis gets deep with Chris. Is it acceptable not to give the whole truth if you're setting a bad example for the children?
0: The children.
1: Chris says you must not set a bad example and it goes back to the drinking saying you're not giving me the benefit of the doubt. Louis says, Chris, we know you drink. We paid your hotel bill. (laughs) Busted. (laughs) He's been found out there.
0: BBC expenses, by the way.
1: I know, right?
0: Chris is obviously thrown off by this. He's sort of assuming that Louis is going to show the hotel bill in the final edit. Louis says, no, that's not their style. They won't do that as they're getting out of the car he's still looking down the barrel of the camera and saying he doesn't drink and even if he did he wouldn't say it Alcohol's a debilitating drug that can knock you down louis says what are you doing we'll just cut that out and then on the street a woman hugs chris and louis says don't talk to him he's a heavy drinker
1: he's almost like he's trying to kind of prick the pomposity of you banking this scene this role model figure that he's trying to build
0: like i can understand it from both sides because I do understand that you know you should set a good example but also that you should probably be honest with young people as well and it is quite hypocritical to live that way if this is the way that Chris Eubanks living and having a bit of a double life
1: yeah and I think that double life eventually catches up with you I don't think you can keep those real distinctions in your head say one thing act one way in front of some people and then act another way in front of others I don't think that's a healthy way to live at all They continue this conversation about conduct on the train. Chris says his mother wouldn't like him using bad language on TV, so he doesn't. And then Chris asks Louis if he's heard him using bad language on or off camera in the time they've been filming. Louis gleefully replies, yes. Chris says, runt. Louis, it rhymes with that. Chris says, no, no, that rhymed with runt.
0: Uh, it's just <laughs> exhausting. Chris then argues, so it's my word against yours because you don't have this on camera. They're both laughing, but it feels a bit tense and Louis seems a bit wound up by the drinking thing. I guess he doesn't feel like Chris is owning up to being a hypocrite in that sense. So it's like they're just kind of bickering backwards and forwards here.
1: Yeah, and they get kind of philosophical on it. Chris says,
2: As with the sages, oh, they can teach you, but do they live what they say? Doesn't mean that they're hypocritical. Why not? That, it doesn't mean that That's the definition of
1: the word. <laughs> Which is just really funny. I know that train. That train is about an hour and ten. So they've got an hour and ten of this conversation between them.
0: And Louis doesn't give up. During the journey, he asks Chris if he does drugs and gets the expected answer no. And if he did, he wouldn't tell him. He then asks Chris if he's ever been unfaithful to his wife.
1: It's a very pointed question, that.
0: Chris says no, absolutely not. There are no caveats. There's no, if I did, I wouldn't tell you, because he says he's now talking to his wife through the camera, not the children. And Louis, exhausted by this, just says, well, this must make sense to you, I suppose. He can't get his head around the weird kind of moral gymnastics that are happening here.
1: He describes them as an optical illusion, Chris's answers. But Eubank is clearly interested in how he's perceived. How will the viewers look at this? He's asking Louis. And he says he thinks that they'll look at him quite kindly, which is just interesting. I think they'll look at, well, I look at him as kind of someone who's concerned, very self-conscious, incredibly self-conscious.
0: It's like he's constantly recalibrating in his head all these different rules that he's got and it just seems exhausting and it doesn't really make any sense.
1: But they seem to end this section having bonded a little bit. Louis then says he likes Chris and Chris responds bashfully and opens up some crisps.
0: They've got a lovely train picnic, don't they? Of crisps and a carton of Ribena.
1: And then we cut to the streets of Brighton and Louis and Chris are holding hands. Eubank says he's helping him cross the road. I think it's more like a clearly a symbol of affection. Even if it's a joke, they are being tactile together. Eubank says holding hands is not a problem. We are in Brighton, which is, you know, the LGBT capital of the UK, I suppose.
0: But Louis seems very embarrassed and uncomfortable, which is interesting because he's often the one who's touching other people chris does it to him and then he says okay we'll let that go now thank you and takes his hand away
1: so we go back to the eubank house louis planning to spend an evening with chris and his family in order to get chris at his more relaxed state then narrates at least that was the idea
0: so it's a lovely sunny evening they're out in the garden with the kids running around and then louis says to chris he should be playing with his children having the best time of his life And instead he's just getting Louis to ask him what he calls silly questions. He still seems a bit frustrated with Chris at this point.
1: And then we cut to a clip of Louis and Chris playing with the children. It's very sweet. They're kind of throwing what look like blossoms over each other, I'm not sure, or petals over each other. And then it's all over and Chris asks one of his children to go get my cane. Louis, this is maybe a bit of a stretch. He says, I don't know how it works as I don't have kids, but they don't seem to do what you tell them to. (laughs)
0: Whose kids at that age do exactly what they tell them to straight away?
1: Also, I wonder if parent Louis would be that judgmental now about someone else's parenting.
0: I wrote, we'd love to ask seasoned dad Louis to watch this back now and reassess.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Then we spot Karen in the distance and Louis asks if they should be helping. Chris says if she needs it, she'll ask and the kids will fall right into line.
0: Do you know what, Chris? Sometimes she doesn't want to ask.
1: She's busy sorting things for the kids. There's lots of noise from upstairs. I think she's trying to bathe the kids. And Louis asks, Does the Lord of the Manor of Brighton wash his kids at all? Chris says they wash themselves, clearly.
0: Louis says that Chris is dandying around while Karen does everything for the kids. Emphasising this throughout this entire section, Louis and Chris are standing at the bottom of the stairs and Karen is just like running up and down the stairs between them, getting things back to the bath, sorting out the kids.
1: Chris's excuse is he can't go upstairs because the kids don't want to be seen like that. Lou says it wouldn't have been rude to go upstairs without the camera people. We would have just stayed down here if you needed that.
0: Chris then asks Karen as she like runs past if she wants anybody putting in line, as in his children. She laughs and says... (laughs) (laughs) You say that every day. Nothing Uh never changes. We're getting the real Karen now. Uh And Chris only seems to want to be like a last resort authoritarian, you know, very much the wait until your dad gets home kind of guy. Louis asks, Karen, do you wish Chris was helping a bit more? She says,
2: yeah, you've lost the plot on that, I'm afraid.
1: You've lost the plot on that, Chris.
2: Totally and utterly, and I don't mind telling the world about that. Useless, as most
0: male men are, I'm afraid. I assume she means men, not men that deliver post.
1: (laughs) yeah it's again it's this very heteronormative relationship very kind of old school
0: yeah it's annoying because it's like she's kind of getting it and then she just undermines herself by being like oh it's because he's a stupid old man
1: yeah exactly that chris says he helps in the way he can i'm not a mummy again i think he means a mother instead of an egyptian coffin (laughs) (laughs) i go out and work That's my 50%.
0: Along with steering, wisdom and protection.
1: Louis makes the point he's surprised that Chris isn't doing it just to make himself look good on camera, which is a great point.
0: Karen comes back downstairs in the midst of this and just goes, no one ever replaces the toilet roll except the women. Have you ever noticed that?
1: And Chris reveals he doesn't even know where the toilet roll is kept.
2: (laughs) Fuck's sake.
0: (laughs) Karen says women work and look after kids but it's like Chris can't hear her he just carries on telling Louis that they get on so well because Karen understands her job as a mother and he understands Karen's job as a mother and they don't intrude on each other's jobs which is just like the biggest load of wank when she's clearly physically very annoyed with him Louis shouts, are you hearing this, Karen? And she replies, I've heard it all before.
1: Chris tries to kind of get into a conversation on her job up the stairs, but she's sorting out the kids. She doesn't have time to like pontificate on what it means to be a woman and a mother. Then Karen kind of returns. She says, every woman loves her job as such, but it's very unrewarding doing the mundane task all day and every day it's very
0: stressful. She says, a man can come home and forget about his work. A woman never, ever can. And then Chris asks literally about 40 times if he sometimes helps. And eventually Karen says that, yes, he sometimes helps. But not with the toilet roll.
1: Chris is kind of silent. He's thinking and he's looking a little bit stung. He knows he looks bad at this point, maybe, with the cameras there. And then he says out of nowhere.
2: Let me tell you the good thing. You see Wishes and Judy in the morning? The newspapers, like uh, The Mirror, The Sun, and Political Correctness, they're not running my house. I run my house.
0: Then there's a really long silence after that.
1: This is a kind of classic Louis move. You just let something sit for a while and just kind of stare at them.
0: It's a very good one.
1: Feels like a really poignant one, definitely. Louis narrates that he wanted to see a more private side of Chris, but this wasn't exactly what he had in mind. And then they are having a takeaway for dinner, Louis, Chris and Karen, and they pick up this conversation again. Louis is sat there, Not saying a lot, watching behind a glass of red wine.
0: (laughs) It's like right up to the brim. To be fair, after that day. (laughs) Chris is saying that he and Karen have an old-fashioned relationship. And Karen wants to clarify that it's a traditional relationship because the man goes out to work. But I don't think she likes the idea of him describing it as old-fashioned.
1: He says he doesn't want this pressure about him not doing enough for the children. He does enough. And then he says he can only do what he's a byproduct of. He can only do what his father did with him. It's not any attempt there to kind of break bad cycles of behaviour or whatever.
0: The justification is mad. So he says he doesn't feel guilty for not playing with his children. He can't remember his father playing with him. He remembers his dad telling him he loved him once. He gives 80% more to his children than his father gave to him. And it still doesn't come up to scratch. But that's Karen's perception, not his.
1: Just a really interesting look at this very repressed upbringing that Chris clearly lived in.
0: But his resentment about that, he's projecting onto his children now. Like if you'd grown up with a dad that wasn't very affectionate, wouldn't you then want to be like 120% affectionate with your children?
1: The fact that he can picture the two times he got any affection from his dad and they were so important to him, to not give that to his children is is probably the kind of thing where you, you'd need some help to maybe break the, the cycles that you're in.
0: And all he wants is acceptance. And wh- who do you get the fundamental acceptance from? Your parents. God. Not that we're psychologists or anything. No, but none right.
1: of us are qualified to speak about this. <laughs> Luckily, his kids won't have any psychological scars, he says, because they have a wonderful mummy. So Louis has said nothing in this time. He's just been a kind of passive observer of this whole conversation. And then he talks about how Chris spoke about acceptance in their first day together. And now he was understanding why. Yeah, that whole idea of tough childhood. And he's kind of reliving that with his own children in some way
0: which sucks
1: which sucks really does
0: that sucks dads don't do that dads and mums but mostly dads
1: but it must be hard I think it must be hard to break those patterns Mm. of what you've been brought up with and what you've kind of learnt from your parents they fuck you up your mum and dad they don't mean to but they do
0: I don't even have kids and I've caught myself saying things my mum used to say to me to the cat yeah mostly to the cat (laughs) she doesn't do any fucking housework So we cut to Chris driving an open green Jeep, which seems like it should be out of some kind of Vietnam War movie rather than on the streets of Hove.
1: He's just a regular guy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it's a new day and Louis is in the passenger seat and there are more passengers in the back. I think it's probably the crew. And Louis says in voiceover that he'd been asking Chris to spar with him for a while. And as their time comes to an end, he agrees. Time for the fight
1: yeah so we meet chris's trainer right throughout his career ronnie davies who now actually trains chris eubank jr still in the boxing game very respected trainer like a very big figure in british boxing
0: no offense ronnie but he must be ancient by now
1: oh yeah chris kisses him on the cheek which kind of shows that there is this very affectionate bond between the two of them
0: the gym is cheetah's gym is that still there
1: cheetah's gym is still there in some way it's now part of a sports center but yeah the building is still there
0: that's fun
1: And then we kind of see Chris in between the ropes, telling Louis he wouldn't have been a good fighter.
0: (laughs) You shock me.
1: (laughs) He says, The Louis nose would have broken all the time. And then he says, Englishmen have straight noses. But even by that standard, Louis Snoz is something else.
0: So they're in the ring and they do some sort of 80s aerobic style stretching. Louis asks Chris if he ever heard a voice telling him to stop boxing. I assume this is a sort of Jiminy Cricket-style conscience, saying that it was too horrible and that he didn't need to do it. Chris dismisses him, saying... Stop being tabloid,
2: Matt. Come on. Stop being what?
0: Stop being tabloid. And explaining that in the gym, he gets serious. No time for jokes. I think stop being tabloid is such a good insult. It's
1: great insult.
0: Can we make that a thing? <laughs>
1: Louis again pushing on this idea of the psyche of a boxer, how you continue to fight when things are tough chris says i'm constantly disappointed with your intellect
0: (laughs) louis clarifies that all he means is what stopped chris from giving up when he was in the ring
1: and he says that throwing in the towel is cowardice he says it's a vocation and you should be there to take a beating which he absolutely did in his career he took terrible punishment in fights
0: Something that means that you get hit in the head a lot, very hard, is probably not very good for you.
1: No, no, there are charities and organisations that are looking into this, but it does seem to be the thing in boxing that none of the industry wants to talk about, is what happens to people who are consistently hit in the head and have a lot of damage to their brain. Where does that leave them in the end? And Chris has seen this close up. Michael Watson, like I said earlier, they had a very brutal fight and it left Michael Watson seriously brain damaged for the rest of his life, so. (sighs) It's mad. So Louis is getting his gloves done up. One of the trainers asks him about a head guard. Louis says, I'm not going to wear one if Chris doesn't. And then Chris immediately seems different. He kind of snaps and insists, no, 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 you will wear a head guard. He's all right with having a bit of fun in the ring, but I don't think he wants Louis to get seriously hurt.
0: Also, it's like he's not going to be able to resist punching him in the head. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the trainer says there's more chance of Chris catching him than the other way around. I don't think he's going to do any long lasting damage to Eubank at this point. <laughs>
0: louis gets the head guard on he looks like he is shitting himself i think is the technical term (laughs) Uh, he also can't see because he doesn't have his glasses on should have worn some contacts that day louis
1: the glasses and the jodpas are off
0: they square up to each other in the ring and louis is basically running away Chris lets Louis get some jabs in, tells him to hit him. And Louis doing some very soft taps, but he really doesn't want to.
1: But he's clearly wanted this. He's asked for this to be part of it.
0: Would you try and get into it? Or would you be too afraid of getting punched by Chris Eubank?
1: I would love to do some sparring. I would absolutely love to do it. But I think it would be intimidating. I wouldn't take it lightly. The trainers are not impressed at all by Louis. You've come to spa, show something, Louis. Ronnie Davis shouts, we're in the gym, this is not hide and seek. Says he's not showing respect and I think that's fair. He's asked for this, he's got the gloves on, they're taking the time out to give him a lesson in sparring and he's not taking it seriously.
0: Dare I say it's a bit like the wrestling episode. Yeah. When he wasn't committing to it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Louis asks, why can't they just shadow box? Ronnie says, No, you're in there now, you've got to spar. They assure him he's safe. And I think he is. There's he's not in real danger here. Chris Eubank knows where his limits are.
0: Louis looks ill. Like he looks so (laughs) pale.
1: He he looks awful.
0: My favourite moment is when Chris tells Louis he'll lose all credibility if he doesn't commit to the fight, and Louis says, I lost that a long time ago.
1: Then they finally spar a little. They have a little bit of a sparring for one round. Then they kind of hug and Louis is absolutely knackered. He looks so drained at this point. Chris brings him into the middle of the ring and says, now imagine that was for another 11 rounds. I think he's kind of showing this is why I am who I am, I suppose.
0: Chris also maybe kindly says that he thinks he will be a bit bruised and tender from Louis' punches.
1: They joke around with him. One of the trainers says, Louis, you was terrible.
0: (laughs) (laughs) and then as they leave the gym Louis says in the voiceover that Chris seemed to feel that he'd proven a point and he may have been right
1: but what was that point
0: do you think he is an expert a professional boxer and you can take that for granted and say well it's just hitting people in the head but it's a massively disciplined sport isn't it
1: and I think this is the most comfortable we've seen Chris in any kind of surrounding he's not great at being a kind of stay at home dad The panel shows were obviously a very tough time for him. But with these people in this situation, I think he feels more comfortable. He feels more himself.
0: And it's sad, really, because he's aged out of that. You know, if you or I was told, "Okay, we can't do anything that you've been doing up to this point in your career. You just have to go and do something else. We'd probably feel quite uncomfortable in those environments as well.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's exactly that.
0: Our interviewee for this episode was on hand for many of chris eubank's biggest achievements and lowest moments in the ring a legend in his own right in the boxing world mike costello was lead boxing and athletics commentator for the bbc for many many years and now works with international sports streaming service disown
3: I'm Mike Costello, boxing commentator for the sports channel DAZN, and I moved there about 18 months ago, having spent 30 years reporting for BBC Radio at various Olympic Games. I went to eight Olympic Games and I've covered more than 100 world title boxing fights as well. So my my background is generally in boxing and track and field athletics. I joined the BBC as a 16-year-old at a time when the employment landscape was very, very different. I simply wrote to the BBC asking if there were any opportunities for 16-year-olds. And by some miracle, I got a job in the BBC Accounts Department. And then it was a very different place that it was much easier to, to stroll around the various different departments. And I made a nuisance of myself in the sports room, got a job as a runner on a Saturday afternoon, unpaid, like, like many have started out. Um, and eventually moved up through the various ranks within the sports room to, to become a commentator. My first commentary was in 1995 at the World Athletics Championships in Gothenburg.
0: So you will have seen Chris Eubanks' career, his kind of rise and then how he's progressed and now his son coming up as well. What were your thoughts and what were your experiences with covering him and maybe meeting him during that?
3: Well, I'm lucky enough to have, around the sport like boxing, which in the media sense is such a rich source when it comes to unearthing characters and and people that you can really get into and who have such a story to tell in many cases. And Chris Eubank was right up there with the most fascinating characters that I ever bumped into. He was charismatic at times. He was challenging. He was eccentric. But he backed all of that up with what he did in the ring because he was truly one of the most determined and one of the bravest men I I ever saw in a ring.
0: When he was at his prime, he was sort of a boxer that people loved to hate. Did you see that?
3: I think he cultivated a persona that he felt would work in terms of building his reputation, but also building his bank balance. He was promoted at the time by Barry Hearn, who through the 1980s had really grown the popularity of snooker, which was garnering massive audiences on BBC television at the time. And Chris Eubanks' fights around that time, as he moved through the late 80s into the early 90s, were shown on terrestrial television on ITV at a time when satellite and cable television was in its infancy in the UK. And so there were still massive audiences for the biggest of sports events and, and Chris Eubank came to be involved in some of those massive sports events because of his personality and because of a particular rivalry with another boxer called Nigel Benn. And during that period, they fought twice in 1990 and 1993. And Chris Eubank, in concert with Barry Hearn, realized that if one side of the poster was the good guy, then the other side of the post it really ought to be the bad guy to sell more tickets and, and, and to draw bigger audiences to ITV television. And so he happily adopted the attitude of one of the greatest of all time in to my mind, the greatest of all time, Muhammad Ali, who used to say, look, I don't care if they come to watch me win or they come to see me get knocked out as long as their checks don't bounce. Just bring them in he almost fostered the hostility of the crowd. On, on those big nights against Nigel Benn. sitting at ringside, you could almost feel this seething hostility as he walked to the ring. And, and many a boxer would have been broken by that, but he embraced that. And he would climb the steps to the ring and then stand on the edge of the ring before climbing through the ropes and just turn around. And he'd put his arms across his chest and stare all around 360 degrees at everyone in the crowd that was screaming at him. And not everybody was. I mean, because of this persona, there were those who, who actually came to like him and, and came to like that, that kind of attitude of his. But he, he really wrapped himself in this hostility and actually it, it actually made him a better performer for it. But it was fascinating to see him cultivate this kind of persona. And he built that over a number of years and and, and tried to change what people thought of him. So he used to talk about when he fought Nigel Benn, for example, being the society brain against the street brain, when in fact he too had come from the same streets as Nigel Benn, But he tried to convince everybody that he was a very different person to the one that, that actually existed.
0: Obviously, this is a little bit later when Chris Eubank had retired, and you see that he's still trying to cultivate that image of himself as a dandy and a society gentleman. But you also see him very keen for the public to like him as well. As much as he welcomed being a bit of a villain figure in the ring, do you think that he also felt like he needed to make sure that people liked him after the fact?
3: Deep down, I have no doubt about that. Something that struck me watching the Louis Theroux programme back was how very early on in the piece he spoke about the need for acceptance. And around the same time, his autobiography was written. And there's a chapter in there that says, hate me, but don't disrespect me. And, and that kind of sums up his, his feeling. He wants acceptance for what he's done and, 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 and for what he is. And, and I think that's absolutely key to the character. And I think also when you, you look at the career of Chris Eubank in the ring and all that he went through, he without question wanted more plaudits than he got, in particular in those fights against Nigel Benn. And there was a pivotal moment also in the career of Chris Eubank when a year after boxing Nigel Ben for the first time, he was involved in a horrendous fight at what was then Tottenham Hotspur's football ground against Michael Watson. And this has become an infamous fight in British boxing history because Michael Watson, as a result of the injuries sustained in the contest after Chris Eubank had won, was taken to hospital and spent the best part of six weeks in a coma and had six operations. And for Chris Eubank that took him a long time to deal with the aftermath of that night and I think that all feeds into the overall need for acceptance that we saw back then in the documentary but I think is still very much a part of who Chris Eubank is.
0: Is that something that's quite unique to Eubank's story or does that kind of thing happen to boxers quite a lot?
3: I wouldn't say it happens quite a lot and and because of that fight various procedures were put in place that have increased the safety. So the plight of Michael Watson has actually helped boxers in later years. For example, on that night, they had real problems getting a stretcher to the ring because of the size of the crowd. Nowadays, there are paramedic crews and stretchers at ringside ready What also happened on that night was Michael Watson was taken initially to a hospital which didn't have a neurosurgery specialist department. And therefore, there was a delay in getting him to the hospital that did. Now, the nearest hospital that has a neurosurgical unit is put on alert when there is a boxing show within the vicinity. That's a really important change that has been made because surgeons talk about the golden hour after the injury has been inflicted, whether it's in a car crash or in a boxing ring. And and I've been told by eminent neurosurgeons that the injuries are very similar without the fragments of glass if somebody's gone through a windscreen or whatever. And when... I would say, accidents. Others would say that, you know, it, it's happened deliberately. But when instances like that happen, quite often the authorities do respond in a positive way to try to ensure that it doesn't happen again. And mercifully, there have been very few instances like that in the 30 odd years since.
0: Chris Eubank Jr. is now a very successful boxer himself. And I think Chris Eubank Sr. is or was involved in helping to coach him. What has that been like to watch that progression
3: well, I, I did chuckle when I watched back the, uh, the Louis Theroux piece with, with little Chris running around the garden um, You know, as a tiny nipper and Chris Senior saying he didn't want any of his sons to box. But eventually being around the sport for so long for Chris Junior almost tempted him in. And he's been very successful, not as successful as his had, but he has been tremendously successful in terms of the money he's earned and the renown that he's built around himself. It's interesting as well, the two different eras from my point of view in terms of my career and being around Chris Eubank Sr. twice. Soon after the fight against Michael Watson, it was three or four months afterwards before Chris Eubank Sr. returned to the ring. And I interviewed him at a press conference in London ahead of a, a fight against the South African called Tulani Malinga in a, a room with about 50 journalists. And it was fairly silent in the room. This was quite a solemn and and, and somber atmosphere. And I remember, and this was very early in my career, going to him with the microphone, realising that there were a lot of people watching and listening to this. And I said to him, Chris, given what happened to Michael Watson, this must have been a very difficult period for you. And he just looked me straight in the eye and he said, how do you know? And he just left that silence hanging in the air. But that was the kind of man he was. He wouldn't just trot out what the media or journalists wanted him to say. That was a a really important lesson for me as a reporter early in my my career. Then fast forward to when he's around his son's career, and I'm, I'm talking now around 2017, 2018, he was involved, Chris Jr., in a couple of very big fights, massive press conferences of the kind that his dad was involved in two decades earlier. And I'd spoken to Chris Sr., about what it was like now seeing his son getting to the kind of pedestal that he'd been on. And we did a particularly long interview. And I went back, I was, I was making a podcast for BBC Radio 5 Live at the time. And we played this out. And the guy I was doing it with, Steve Bunce, we kind of chuckled at the end of it because Chris Eubanks Sr.'s first answer was seven minutes long. It was a terrific interview, but we laughed about that. When I say laughed, we kind of chuckled. And when I got to the next press conference, Chris Eubank Sr. came up to me and said, you ridiculed me. You were laughing about my first answer taking seven minutes. And I said, look, it, it, it wasn't that at all. And therefore I had to dig myself out of a hole again. But um, we genuinely weren't ridiculing it. We were just talking about where else in the world of sport, even in the world of politics, would you get an answer that's seven minutes long? But that's, that's Chris Eubank.
0: Did you kind of feel for Louis having to deal with the Eubank mentality?
3: Yes, I did. And, and, you know, sometimes as a reporter, it's really hard to stay with somebody who's being abrasive or is being obstructive. And it was interesting to see how Louis at times dealt with that. But I thought what was also fascinating was that Chris seemed for most of the show, from my point of view, so eager to please Louis as well and that came across and so that meant that the you know that the difficult moments were limited.
0: Did you ever bump into Louis Theroux at any point while you were at the BBC?
3: No I didn't no. Very recently seen him turning up at various boxing events but no never bumped into him.
0: What did you think of his performance when he gets in the ring with Chris? (laughs)
3: Let's just say if it was a school report it could do better. It is an intimidating place, a, a boxing gym, for anybody to go, even even somebody as, as, as confident and as experienced as Louis was at the time.
0: Is there anything that you would say you should never say to a boxer? Was there anything that Louis said during the episode that you thought, oh, I'm not sure if I would have gone there with Eubank or with anyone in the sport?
3: It's important to, to understand that they've got a story to tell. Let them tell it and, and and don't prompt them to tell the kind of tale that you necessarily want told. Because in, in boxing in particular, given the background of a lot of these boxers and, and what Chris tried to change was the perception that every boxer is monosyllabic, uneducated and a thug. To give him a lot of credit, and he, you see the scene in the documentary where the jobbers are laid out at the tailors and, the, and he, he would wear the monocle and walk with the cane. And Okay, so you know, he went beyond where, where he needed to go in terms of changing that persona. But a lot of young boxers, when they're first approached by the media, will pretty much say anything that the media want them to say and can be goaded to follow a line that the media want, whereas Chris was never ready to do that.
0: And do you think that there are still those kind of personalities in boxing now? Or was he just, you know, one of a kind in that respect?
3: One of a kind, I think, is too strong because the sport is full of and and has been throughout history very different characters, for good and for bad. But I do think that he stood out and and he understood what he needed to do to stand out. What was important about the era that Chris was in was that he was still on terrestrial television and he still, if you like, to, to use this word, invaded people's homes without them even knowing he was coming into their homes because he just followed on from the news or whatever. Whereas now there's so much choice that the rabid boxing fans really have to go looking for boxing now and to pay for it. There's very little boxing that's on terrestrial television anymore. And that's the case with a lot of sports. But Chris, in a sense, was part of a perfect storm around that time of the late 80s and the early 90s, when football wasn't necessarily so popular in this country. There'd been a trio of horrible stadium tragedies in the 80s. What was happening on the pitch wasn't that entertaining. And so there was a window of opportunity for other sports. Chris Eubank against Nigel Benn got audiences of, depending on what figures you believe, of around 15 and 16 million people. Now, th- those audiences are gone forever, apart from Royal Weddings and, and World Cup finals in football or whatever. But at that time, Chris cultivated all of that. That can't happen again. But that's not to say that the characters aren't there. It's just that they're now being, if you like, marshaled and they're being promoted in in a very different way, such as their own YouTube channel or programs on, on satellite networks or streaming channels. The audience is still there. It's just much more divided than it used to be. It would have been fascinating to see how someone like a Chris Eubank or a Mike Tyson or Muhammad Ali and all of these great characters going down the years would have adapted to suit the modern age. My feeling is that they were such strong characters that we would have heard about them.
0: Obviously, the boxing industry probably needs the pay-per-view to you know, survive. But do you think it means that there are potentially a lot of would-be fans that will never get into it because it's not as mainstream and it's not as readily available as it was?
2: I
3: don't think there's any question about that. It, it's not nearly as popular a sport in terms of the, the numbers of eyes on it. But at the same time, Chris Eubank Sr., if he were boxing today, would be earning far more money. That's the strange thing about this, and it's, it's almost a contradiction. The simple thing is here, if you have a pay-per-view audience of one million people, which is actually a very healthy figure in this country, and not too many fights have generated that kind of audience, but if you've got an audience of a million people paying £25 each, then very simple mathematics tells you that's £25 million in the pot. Now, there are various factions take their money out, the television companies, the promoters, but a lot of that money goes to the boxers. Now there's nothing like that kind of money could be generated even on ITV back in the day. Sports programs at that time were heavily funded by advertising. Now, if you've got a football match, you know that that match is going to last 90 minutes. And so you can build the advertising around halftime, full time, whatever. In boxing, it could be over after three minutes. And there could be a long line of advertisers who've paid for their 30 seconds worth that aren't going to get on. And so you can't necessarily generate that same kind of money.
0: When they retire, do a lot of boxers have a bit of a crisis of self? What happens there?
3: It's been a particular problem in boxing. And I would argue that it's been a a deeper problem in boxing than in any other sport. And I think it's partly because of what they do. It's a really dark sport at times, as Chris knows with what happened to Michael Watson. He knows that could have happened to him. Boxers have to build a certain mindset, and it takes time to do that. And to deal with that kind of darkness really takes its toll sometimes on their mindset. When they get to the end of their career, suddenly that massive sense of concentration that they've had to deal with is freed up, and their mind is then open. To whatever they want to attach it to there is also for boxers and you could say this is applicable to other sportsmen and women as well that because they've led such a regimentary life three times a day doing some kind of physical exercise to get ready for the next fight and suddenly all of that is gone all of that routine is gone from their lives and they find that particularly difficult I think there's been a lot more in terms of education over the years because I've been looking just recently actually for for a feature about the most recently retired British boxers and in the main they are success stories. I often say that it's actually very rare in boxing in this country or anywhere around the world that the boxers retire with three key elements in place, their health, their wealth and their reputation. Chris Eubank walked away in boxing terms, relatively healthy, very wealthy, and with his reputation very much intact, even though he lost his last three fights because of what he'd done beforehand. His reputation was secure, and he can take great satisfaction from that. I don't know that he does because they're made differently to the rest of us. So it's the final goodbye. They're
1: back at the Eubank residence and they're out in the garden. Louis says that now Chris has bested him in the ring. He seems more relaxed, more ordinary. And he talks about Chris's persona of respect, but Louis liked him best when he was just being himself.
0: They talk about their fight and Chris says Louis was punching with 200 pounds behind him and Chris punches with four tons. So that's like half his truck. (laughs) And Chris kind of makes fun of Louis a little bit. He's been on the defensive for the whole documentary. So maybe now he feels that he can make fun.
1: Karen's there as well and Karen's laughing. She's very much enjoying this too. So then they say goodbye and Louis hugs them both. Chris then says he's too spindly to hug. (laughs) Shots fired at the spindly community. How dare you, Chris?
0: Karen says they should do it again someday when they're old. Hey, guys, maybe it's time to get the band back together.
1: Louis jokes, we are old, but I bet he'd look at that now and think, wasn't I so young in the ring with Chris Eubank?
0: Yeah, Louis was 31 at this point. Um, I've written skull emoji, skull emoji, skull (laughs) emoji.
1: Chris kind of sees him out of the premises the same way he greeted him at the gate when he arrived. And there does seem to be a genuine affection there. I think they did get on. Would you like to know what happened afterwards?
0: Yes, please.
1: I mean, it's very difficult to summarise everything down into a few points, but I'll try my best. In August 2005, Karen petitioned for divorce.
0: Oh, that was only four years later. Yep. We're probably not going to get the band back together.
1: <laughs> I don't think so. it would be a very different episode. He went on to be Chris Hubank Jr.'s manager when he turned professional in 2011. They've appeared together on Celebrity Gogglebox. Last year, Sebastian Hubank, one of his sons, died from a massive heart attack while in the sea in Dubai. Chris has given some very, very troubling interviews lately. He doesn't seem to be in a good space. It seems to be possibly that he's struggling with grief. So we send all our best wishes to Chris and hope he is in a good place soon. Okay, ding, ding, the fight's done. Alex, was this good Louis or bad Louis?
0: Uh, it was all right. Did we have an all right Louis? <laughs> I didn't really remember this one that clearly, which was interesting because it's almost like coming to it fresh. I thought he did a good job of showing the inconsistencies at home and giving a bit more of a 3D image of who Chris Eubank was. But I don't know, it wasn't that enlightening, really.
1: No, it's not. This just felt very uncomfortable. I enjoyed Ready to Steady Cook with Ainsley Harriet. I didn't enjoy They Think It's All Over. Yeah, it's okay, Louie. Okay, Louie. <laughs> We'll let you do this. We'll let you have your time off with Chris Eubank.
0: Join us again next time for another All Right Louis. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. Join us next time to see Louie meet ventriloquist Keith Harris, try saying that three times fast, and his fluffy green pal Orville. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Pod. Angels on your bodies.